0: purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free see better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto, Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts
0: this is Jenny Allen and you are listening to the made for this podcast
2: welcome back to another episode of the made for this podcast we're so grateful for our friends at Issue for partnering with us for this episode. You can get started with Issue today for free or sign up for a premium account and get 50% off at issuu.com slash podcast and use our promo code made for this. And now here's Jenny.
0: Well, you guys, this is going to be a treat for me. This is going to be a treat for you because this is one of our most popular guests we have ever had at If Gathering, but also on the podcast. If you have not listened to his first episode, you've got to go back and listen to it because it's it's a high level of what we're going to do today on shame. And it is Dr. Kurt Thompson. He is in the house. We are so excited to have him. I know this. Kurt makes me cry. Every time we talk, Kurt makes me cry. So I'm hoping for a day (laughs) that I don't cry and that y'all don't cry, but you know, Kurt, it's kind of your specialty.
1: I know my mission. I'm...
0: <laughs> see, he even he's excited about it. Right, I um, am. I'm looking forward to right. about
1: ten minutes from now. I'm looking for about ten minutes from now that it's all gonna it's all gonna happen.
0: It's all gonna come out. See, I basically pay for or I get free counseling by podcasting. You know, I just get get awesome people on to help me.
1: Yeah, well, and it's free. Believe me. Yeah,
0: He's like Jenny. If I make you cry, you're paying me. <laughs> Okay, well, here's what I know. I know this, that there are issues in our day right now. And this is what we're talking about this season, Kurt, is we all find ourselves in a very, very difficult, chaotic fall. And we are fighting all kinds of feelings. And some of those feelings, for a lot of people, it's the first time that they're really waking up to them and noticing them. I doubt it's the first time they're feeling them. But I want to discuss a little bit about shame because this is such an important thing for you. So, if you don't know, Dr. Thompson is a psychiatrist as well as an expert on. Go ahead. I'm not. I'm going to blow it. So it's it's neuro something.
1: <laughs> we might just say the brain and relationships, or we could say interpersonal neurobiology. Either of those, whatever works. See,
0: see that's wh- that's why I blow it because I try to do the second one. Yes, brain and people. So he has taught me so much on this issue. In fact, a lot of what I write about these days is because of Kurt's influence in my life. And so I'm excited for you guys to hear from him. So shame really was a topic that you saw as foundational. It was one of your first books. I know it wasn't your first because I read your first book like a decade ago or more, Anatomy of the Soul. But then you come out with this book on shame. And it it was interesting because you deal with so many different issues with people. And this was the first thing that you were like, "I've really got to focus and zero in on that." Talk just a minute about why."
1: Well, I think that in in the work that I was doing, even before the first book was completed, it became evident that at some point in everybody's care, and it didn't matter how severe, it didn't matter the setting. It didn't matter whether we were talking about patients, or we were doing consulting, work with businesses or schools or whatever this phenomenon of shame would start to show up. And to be clear for your listeners, it's it, in my view, it's certainly we, we, we hear shame and we immediately are aware that it's a thing that we feel, but I began to see it as a primary way in which people's lives are disintegrated. So it's a, it's a, mm. we, we feel it physically, certainly we, because of just, we're like animals, we're like other animals in that regard, like a dog does, they can experience that. So it's very, it's, it's a fundamental and basic neurophysiologic event long before in brain time, long before it is, I feel ashamed because my dad always did this or whatever, because I'm not good enough. It's first something that we experience in our bodies and, and everybody experiences it to some degree or another, but it's not just a bad feeling. That then becomes a thing, we are constantly, our brain is constantly in the business. First we sense things and then we make sense of things. So we're always doing 24 seven. And what we do to make sense of shame often reinforces the very shame experience itself. Mm. And so it isn't just a thing that we feel, it becomes a force that disintegrates relationships and even more powerfully in that aspect, in, in, in regard to that, it disintegrates our ability to create. It disables our capacity to make new things. And I think recently, as I mentioned to you before this podcast, I've just become more and more impressed with this notion of how we are made in God's image first to be known by him, but then to go on from there to create beauty and goodness in the world. That's part of what we're made to do. It's just, it's as, it is as genetic, it is as Uh, natural as breathing to want to make Mm. things and Mm. creating beauty. Like that is what we're made to do. And it is anathema to evil. It is nauseating to evil, if you will. And so evil doesn't just use shame to make us feel bad. It uses shame as a way to corrupt our ability to create, whether that's creating relationships, whether that's creating software, furniture, podcast shows, whether that's creating relationships and spiritual formation culture for the women that you do in your ministry, all those kinds of things, whether it's repairing ruptures. I think about my own marriage. I think about the ways in which shame in my own life has kept me from being as actively engaged with my wife as I would want to be. I do something that I feel bad about. And instead of saying, you know, I got to take care of this. I just feel bad about it. And then I feel bad for feeling bad about it. And then it, I become increasingly more passive, which of course is not helpful for the situation. So I think I saw this as not just as a source of and an outgrowth of, it's both, as we like to say, it is, you know, both the cause and the effect Of the kind of behavior that becomes the mediating behavior for whatever shame represents, whatever that happens to be between people in the privacy of my own mind. And it mostly then goes on to keep us from creating. And so we're in a culture right now with all the different ways in which things feel fractured in which shame is really um, the strongest voice in the room. It's it's Mm. not a particular person. It is a it is this phenomenon that uh, has kind of gained authority. It's in the driver's seat. And and so I think all the more reason for us to be conscious of it in order to take the steps that we need to, to address it.
0: Mm, I love that. And I, I mean, I hate it, but I love that you put words to it because I think we – that's the problem is relationships – Walls go up and you don't know exactly what to call that wall. And I've seen such power in naming things and just saying, this is what it is. This is what you're feeling. So some of you listening right now, you're considering for the first time like, gosh, is that why I'm distant from someone or is that the wall that's between relationships? And you would almost always say probably like that, that that really is a root of almost every other feeling we're going to feel and every other struggle we're going to struggle with.
1: Right. I don't I don't think it's 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 obviously not the only noxious or uncomfortable feeling that we have as human beings. We have tons of uncomfortable kind of what we might call negative feelings, feelings that are unpleasant. I'm struck though in the biblical narrative how it is that the writer of Genesis, you know, the Hebrews had lots of different words for describing the state of affairs when Adam and Eve stood on the brink of creation, the man and his wife were naked, and it could have been a whole range of things that the writer could have said. But the writer says they're unashamed, and I then and then of course you read the next chapter, and you know, without you know much time being spent, we're wallowing in it, and then it leads to violence in chapter Four between the brothers. It it really strikes me, you know, it's 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 a big deal because we learn it very early, fifteen to eighteen months of age. We're already picking it up. We're already sensing it in our brains. So obviously, this doesn't necessarily feel good for parents because you're like, oh, great, like I'm, I'm, like my kids are so screwed, right? Uh, Well, I mean, yeah, but the the good news is, I mean, this is this is why the gospel is a story that only God could think of. We would never come up we would never come up with Good Friday. We would never come up with that. We would never come up with the idea that God is gonna enter into our shame as a way of pulling us out of it, as opposed to standing at a distance, like some parent who says, why can't you get your crap together and just punish us for not having our crap together? Instead, he's coming to live in that very space, in order to get our attention where we actually live, not try to call to our attention from someplace else, some distant place. And in so doing, not just make us feel better in the same way that evil's intention is not just to make us feel bad. God's intention with the healing of shame is not just to make us feel better. It is about transforming us in order to recommission us to create icons of beauty and goodness in every domain of life that we occupy. And it's really difficult for me to do that without getting the help I need from other people. And I know that you, you have been championing for as long as I've known you, the role of community. And this is why like my brain needs another brain. I need somebody else to come and find me because the neurobiology of shame is such that I am not gonna go ask you for help with it.
0: Yeah. And and I would say that this season more than ever has caused a lot of shame. And you mentioned that. And we're all isolated. And then we're all watching, you know, our, our, our consumption of current events and things probably is bringing out a lot of confusion and shame. Talk about even just how it's, it's shifted and how maybe the enemy is using it in this season.
1: Well, I think, as I said, I, I've written, as, as I think you're aware, I've written a number of essays about this and about about COVID and its effect. And in one of the first essays, I I said that it's not just an event that creates or causes anxiety or isolation. It is an event that is revealing our anxiety as it already exists and the isolation that we already are living with. Our response in the middle of COVID is not just something that this disease and this social experience is causing, as much as it is revealed, I don't mean that it's not causing any of it, it certainly is, but there, to a large degree, it's also revealing what I have been doing with my life for the past five to 10 years. And so the notion that when social isolation, if, if I've been someone, if I'm being shaped by social media, if that's what's shaping me, that's what I've been practicing, allowing myself to be shaped by over the last five years, and COVID comes, I have even less contact with real embodied people. I'm going to typically simply do more of what I've always done. And the problem is that the things that I've been doing now only become more heightened, more distilled, more intensified. And so I become even less connected to people because I'm turning Mm. to the things that I have been using up until now to cope. With my sense of not being enough, my sense of distress, my sense of shame underneath all of these kinds of things. I'm, I'm not a Luddite I'm not someone who thinks that technology is bad and so forth and so on But I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to recognize that social media has not in fact made us better people I'm not mm-hmm. condemning it, but it has not made us better people. It's made life more convenient it's created moments of joy and happiness and so forth but it has actively created within us states of being more isolated, less connected truly because we 're less embodied as part of the process and so you add to that then that through media is how I am now receiving my awareness of the world right most of us mm. if, if you if you just look at like if you were just like watch my week and if you look at the actual Content and contact that I have with real human beings, whether that's with patients over, you know, via Zoom or even a few in person or my family or my neighborhood, if you were, if I were to just, if you just look at that, I would say there's very little about any of that that would lead me to believe that I should be worried, afraid, so forth and so on. That's not to deny that we have real problems. I'm simply saying that the real interactions that we have with real people give us opportunities to actually. Practice not being afraid. Practice not allowing shame to be running the show. But because of this isolation, we then simply turn to our old practices and it only escalates.
0: What you're saying is so – I mean, I hate to say that. It it is obvious to me, but it has to be said that we are coping (laughs) – with our isolation, we are coping with the season in greater form. So whether that's my husband talking to a local person that owns a liquor store and we were checking on him in the middle of it, like how how's it going? One of the only people open, you know, how are how's business? And of course she was like, Oh, we've never been better. You know, like this is this is glory days for us. And and whether it's alcohol or whether it is technology or, you know, for some people, addiction or porn, even just I like comfort. You know, for me it's been like, okay, I'm gonna get up and get dressed today. Well, that wasn't what something I had to say to myself six months ago. You know, like I got dressed every day. So I kind of have to decide this is going to be a day where I'm productive. And that's a new mentality for some of us. I'm not saying that everyone hasn't struggled with that, but let's talk about that, that coping issue because it really is, I think, it's a fear of mine that we don't snap out of it and pull into more of a disciplined, holy path, you know?
1: Right. Well, I my, my sense is that I think that you're absolutely right. Look, Jesus himself would be working harder if he were here than he was working six months ago. Because for for those folks who who are Working hard to be people of integrity, working hard in their spiritual formation, working like they're running hard after Jesus, they're doing work in community, and so forth and so on. The circumstances of COVID literally put our neurobiological realities in a bit of a lockdown situation. They put us in a situation in which the brain is having to work harder than it usually does. There's no question about that. Whereas before, We've got some of these automatic things that are waiting for us that get us out of bed in the morning and that I get into the shower and go to breakfast and do my thing and so forth and so on, because I I have a coffee date at eight o'clock and that's what I'm gonna do. And this is all part of the routine. And when it goes away, I have a lot less physical, material encounter outside of my own skin that is dependent upon me because it's not happening. And so I then have to make my, as you said, I have to make myself do something with intentionality. It's kind of like, you know, you learn to drive when you're 16. And if you, you know what it's like, really, when, you, when you're sitting with your 16-year-old who's behind the wheel and, you're, and you, the parent, are white-knuckling it because you're not really sure what's going to happen. The 16-year-old gets in the car. And if they're there for the very first time behind the wheel, everything is on high alert, right? They're just trying to know that they've got their seatbelt fastened. Every, they're working really, really hard to do this. And then they learn to drive and months and years go by. And now they're a competent driver and everything is automatically. So all those things that they had to learn to do consciously with intention, paying attention, Mm -hmm. all that has now dropped into automatic lower brain function. They're just doing lots of things automatically, non-consciously, so that they can have the conversation with you in the car while they're driving and everybody's okay. But if then they suddenly find themselves on a sheet of ice or in a really bad snowstorm, suddenly they can't just depend upon their automatic maneuvers anymore. They have to work extra hard to pay attention in ways that they don't typically have to pay attention. Well, imagine if you're gonna be driving in a driving snowstorm for like nine months, that's a lot of extra work that we have to do. And as such, It's that much more important that the connections that we do have with those people by whom we are deeply known. It's that much more important that we are taking initiative to say to you to say to Jenny, Jenny, I just want to let you know, I see how hard you're working just at getting out of bed. I mean, right, just at doing the things that you need to do. And I'm just want to let you know that I'm with you in this, that we're not I'm, I'm I'm not leaving the room. This is this is hard. And it's not hard because you're a pansy. It's not hard because you're stupid. It's not hard because you you like you're you're not spiritually mature enough. It's hard because it's a driving snowstorm. And those yeah. aren't normal conditions in which we drive our car. And so we need mm. that much more effort. We need that much less immersion in social media and more immersion in yep. scripture and spiritual reading. That much less critical conversation and that much more curious conversation in which we are actively engaging people, even if we're not able to be having coffee with them like we usually do or meals in our home with 30 other people, the notion of being connected to people with intentionality has never been more crucial.
0: Never. I could not agree anymore. It scares me because I think those patterns over time, you know, this is going to go on longer, right? It's not over yet. And over time, it's like, what do we become on the other side? And and I love that you said Jesus would be working harder. And I, and I love that you're giving credit to the fact that basic tasks are harder than they used to be. I think that I needed to hear that. I needed to recognize that in myself to push through it and be more disciplined. But I had to almost diagnose it in a way. Because all of this is going to lead to more and more shame and more and more paralyzation. So so that's our hope here, guys, is that that you would hear this and go, you're not alone. You're not the only person that is having a hard time getting dressed right now. <laughs> this is unique in that I have two homeschooling kids here right now. In fact, I have more because a couple girls are joining my daughter right now to because they were just tired of being alone and they planned it. And I thought that was actually really well played we let that happen so I think there's a lot of unusual circumstances I don't have to say that but sometimes the basics need to be said you're not alone in how difficult the everyday tasks are
2: Hey guys, Chloe here again. Let's get real. We are always looking for ways to help you out. And I know so many of you listening are creators or you work in churches, your moms, you live to create. But the hard part is when you make something that you want to share, sometimes it's hard to do that when the file size is so big or you just really want it to look nice and professional. Issue is this all-in-one platform that we use here to create and distribute beautiful files, brochures, PDFs, and share them online. No matter who you are, whether you're a salesperson, a mom, you work in the church— you're a teacher at school issue is for you and they make it super easy all you have to do is upload your pdfs and your files and they transform them using your vision and all of their customizable templates and you are ready to create it and distribute it everywhere so go get started with issue for free or if you sign up for a premium account you will get 50 percent off when you go to issuu.com podcast and use our promo code made for this that's ISSUU.com dot com slash podcast and use the promo code made for this at checkout, and you can get a free account or fifty percent off if you want to use some of their premium features. And now back to Jenny. Okay,
0: so there in your mind is antidotes to shame. There are things to attack shame, and I want to talk about those in our rest of our time together. So let's hear a little bit just about what you've been working on lately and how you see this and I should say first of all that that you are in get out of your head my most recent book and a lot of the podcast family have have read that book so I want to say that he was enemy number one in this chapter on beauty and we're gonna talk about this because he really did pull me out of isolation and cause me to recognize that there and, and again it wasn't even your fault but you kept saying beauty you kept saying beauty and I was like no that's that's not true. And then, of course, what made me cry in our weekend together, it was a poem. Of course it was, because you were right. So let's talk about beauty as an antidote to shame.
1: Well, what I'm really struck by is, and, and this isn't just a problem with modernity, like the last 500 years. I mean, that, it's, it, it, that, I mean, that's, that's part of it. But it, it, it's a problem that date, I mean, this is, this is as old as humanity. This sense that, and we would see this kind of in the Garden of Eden, this sense that I first want to, uh, anytime I see a problem, I understand it, first of all, through the lens of diagnosing a problem, right? You're a pathology to be diagnosed and treated. You're not first an opportunity for beauty to emerge and be creative. No matter what I see, I first think, of this it's a problem. How do I solve the problem? Because that's often how I think of myself. Now, I don't I'm not consciously aware that I'm thinking I don't wake up in the morning and say, Well, gosh, in what ways do I need today to solve my problematic self? But when we imagine problems, we want to find a way to solve it. And I tend to operate out of my logical left linear thinking brain. So if I see a problem, I'm gonna give you a solution for it. If I if you're asking me how I'm doing and I say, Well, this is how I'm doing, then you're gonna say, Well, did you read my book? And did you do this? And did you do this? I don't mean that you're going to do that. I don't. I don't. I don't know that I don't know you're going to. Do, but like, this is what we tend to do. I mean, I, we run these confessional communities in our practice, and one of the first skill sets that people have to learn how to develop. This is especially true for dudes, right? When I get, a, I, get a, I got eight men in my room, and I'm and I and they. Somebody tells their story, and then I'll ask these other gentlemen tell me what emotion gets evoked. You hear the story, what do you feel? And immediately they start to talk about what they think. They give me an analysis. Mm-hmm. They tell me they wanna solve the guy's problems. I think you should have like, why didn't you blah, 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 right? All this like, this is how we want to go about this. We come as problem solvers. And the thing is that, it, and it's not to say that we, that we shouldn't be solving problems. It's not to say that like studying pathology is a bad thing. It's all good. But we have to recognize that even underneath that, The mission of solving a problem is or is in order to free and liberate that person to then go and create what they were made to create. And so even behind what's the problem to be solved is what is the new thing that God is about to create with us? What's Mm -hmm. the new thing? On Good Friday, the religious leaders, the mob and the Romans understood that they were solving a problem. And God was seeing the beginning of new creation. And what was so strange about it was that like none of us who would look at a cruciform, at a person who's crucified by Romans in the first century AD, none of us would imagine that there's anything about that that's anything but grotesque. There's no beauty in that whatsoever. And so we want, when we have our shame matrix that like gets activated... I want to know, what do I need to do to fix this problem? I want to know, what are the steps I need to take? When the first thing that has to happen is that I actually have to be seen in my shame by somebody else who, when they do, Mm
2: -hmm. I
1: find myself being seen by someone who's not coming to solve me as a problem, who's with me before they are instructing me. And my problem is that my shame is often so dense that I can't imagine that if when you do see me, you're not going to want to leave the room long before the problem ever gets solved, which is why I don't ever tell you. Beauty is an answer to this because God looks at Jesus and he sees Easter coming. We don't see that. But with Easter, we look back at Good Friday and everything about the crucifixion, right? Paul says like, the Jews, they want a sign, and the Greeks, they want wisdom. We preach beauty coming in the way you'd never expect it. And the beautiful thing about this is that imagine in, in any moment, imagine in any moment if you were to reveal your something about you that is shameful, that you, like you feel it as you're revealing, as you're naming it, if the person to whom you're saying this says, oh my gosh, you have never been more beautiful than this moment. Mm. Of course, this doesn't make any sense to us, but it is not what they tell me that I'm trying to logically process. It is their eye contact. It is their tone of voice. It is what I'm seeing when I see someone who's receiving me as one who is beautiful. And so we talk in this new book that I've finished writing, I'm inviting the readers to consider that beauty is something that we are made to create because it is something that we long to become. It isn't just this separate thing from us. Mm. It is who in our most ancient memory know that we were destined to be. You, You think about all the different like enemy lines that have been drawn in the past six months, right? Whether it's politics or economics or wearing masks or whatever it is. If you can only imagine that someone that you could imagine would be on the other side of the enemy line approaching you and saying, man, Kurt, I just really, I, I really can't wait to just have a meal with you. I mean, we, we might be six feet apart, but I, I just want to hear your story. Like, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me because this is not, this, this is not how enemies work. And so this notion of our looking and anticipating that beauty is what is going to emerge in any moment actually shifts in my brain, what part of my brain I'm actually using Mm -hmm. to pay attention to the world. When I am paying attention to the world as a problem to be solved, I see it as this thing that is over there that I analyze and that I can easily condemn if I'm not careful. When I see you as someone with whom I want to create, I am not seeing you as over there, I'm seeing you with me here. And we are going to do things together. And I'm gonna be in the present moment. And it leaves so much less room for shame to have the talking stick and describe why this is a bad idea, why all the threat. But I can't do that if I don't have someone also pursuing me in the places where I perceive myself to be unwantable, the other thing that we then say to folks is it's really difficult to actively I, I, I we tell patients this I want you to begin to practice putting yourself in the path of oncoming beauty I want you to begin to practice putting yourself in the path of oncoming beauty and that means before you do anything else in your day you step outside and You know, this, this would look weird, especially if you were doing it in your neighbor's yard, you step outside and you find something in your neighborhood, you find a tree. And I want you to go like, touch the thing. And I want you to recognize Mm -hmm. that the tree, like it didn't get there. Like, like you don't have any way to make this happen. Like there's something about this that is bigger than you, that is beyond you. And it's not even living. It's not even talking to you. And it's like something you couldn't have made happen. This sense of recognizing that when we see the beauty in the tree, it enables us to practice imagining that this is who we are. We don't imagine ourselves to be icons of beauty, but we are. I don't believe it because I don't hear it from anybody else. We hear it in our culture. You're a beautiful woman. And there's all kinds of other clutter that gets included in that. You tell a man, I mean, when you hear one man tell another man, you're a beautiful man. Like everything gets very weird for a nanosecond. (laughs) It gets gets very weird. And then you watch the one who's heard it crumple under the weight. He didn't hear that from his father. To see that you're a beautiful soul, to hear that, like in the face of what you know to be true about me, how is that possible? We would say, well, it's possible because this is what God sees when he sees Jesus on good Friday. And this notion that beauty becomes something that is not, and we can't, I don't like, I don't have to convince you of this. I don't have to argue my political point about this. I just want to invite you to sit with me in this space of beauty and talk about, like, what is it like for you to be in the presence of this icon? How does that change how I then practice paying attention to my world, including the people with whom I dwell? especially the people with whom I have enmity. If I'm looking for beauty, where before I had no intention of looking for it, it doesn't just change what I see, it changes who I am.
0: So the person listening right now that is thinking to themselves, I don't know how to apply this. Like, I don't, no one is going to tell me that. No one is going to listen to me in that way. No one sees me that way. What would you say to them?
1: I would say a couple things. One is... It does make a difference, and, and it makes a difference in, in one of the blog posts that I wrote when we, when we talk about, about COVID, when I, when I talk about the importance of our doing things that uh, tend to be creative in nature. It could be simple things. You're doing sidewalk chalk with your kids, right? You're doing, you're drawing, you're painting. You're like, oh, well, Kurt, I don't, I don't do that kind of, thing. you're journaling, you're baking, you're going to make things. And it's important that we practice doing this in order for us to live into who we were made to be. We were made to be makers. And if I'm not making, I'm condemning. That's, those are my choices. If mm. I'm not making, I'm condemning. And so if I'm condemning, it means I'm spending time not making. And maybe I don't make because I'm afraid I don't have what it takes to make. Maybe I'm afraid I want to make something. I'm afraid I'm going to make mistakes. It's not going to be good enough. Shame's going to like, you know, like all we just need is one good act and shame's going to want to follow us there. But it is that very act and for us to do it with one another. I might not be able to be in the kitchen with four other people, but I might want to know that my friend... Jenny and I are going to learn to bake this new recipe. We're go- like we're going to do this together.
2: Mm.
1: We're going to ask our family to do this together. We're going to ma- we're going to make like we're going to go for a walk someplace and we are going to look for beauty. And we're going to name it and we're going to sit with it. And we're like, but I got all these things I have to do. The doing is not going to make us better people. It's not going to make me better able to tolerate COVID. So practicing creativity in small in the smallest of ways is, is one thing. And then another thing is that we're not just practicing it, but that we are actively, when I said putting ourselves in the path of it, it's really important for us to be actively listening to really good music. It's important for us to spend some time reading good literature. It's important for us to get online because many museums aren't yet open to get online and be present with some really great artwork. I have a friend, Terry Glassby who's about to come out with a book on art and the way that it shapes Christian spirituality. It'll, it'll be a book that I want all my friends to read because it is a way for us to actively engage in the world in such a way that the beauty that we sense is actually able to transform us. If you spend time in nature with great artwork, and then you ask yourself some questions, what do I feel? What do I sense? If I were to be inspired, what does this music inspire me to want to do? What does this music inspire me to want to create? Of course, evil doesn't want any of this to happen. And I'll have all kinds of ways wherein which beauty is gonna be interrupted in which, you know, I'm gonna like, no, I can't do that. I'm not gonna be good enough at that, and so forth and so on. But I will tell you, it, it's what what, it, what is called the cellist of Sarajevo, Verdon Smailovic, the guy who in 1994, right, for 21, 22 days, right, he just plays, he plays the cello. In Sniper Fireline, right, I mean, he just plays. We in modern history have not recently had a more potent example of what Good Friday is all about. This is what God does. Mm-hmm. He comes to our bomb crater of a world and plays a cello Mm. where I'm looking for answers and I'm looking for solutions and so forth, all of which are necessary and helpful in their time. We have to recognize even those answers are are in place in order for us to be able to play the cello the way we want to, in order for us to go on to make as we were made to create. I think about our racial tension and the question that I want to be about answering is how am I not just solving the problem? How am I creating new relationships with people that I don't write that I haven't had? How am I doing that? How I'm like, I, I can't solve racism comprehensively as one person, but I can make relationships. I can listen. Amen. I can act. And if mm-hmm. I am recognizing that the, the, to do this is the creation of beauty It's not just the negation of something bad. It's the creation of something beautiful. It changes the nature of how my brain is operating. It changes the side of my brain that I'm paying attention to the world through. It allows me to be more present. and More importantly, it prevents shame from having the place that it often wants to have in its attempt to disintegrate the whole thing.
0: Well, Kurt, I'm so excited for that book to come out. It doesn't come out yet. It comes out next year. So you guys, I mean, is it pre-orderable yet? Not yet. Not yet. Well, the second it is, you guys are going to hear about it because I know this is something that you have, (laughs) I'm going to use my word carefully, forced forward in me. And I say that because I'm the most reluctant to go here. I am the problem solver. I think there's an answer. And so being present with beauty and being present with God and being present with people. You have taught me a lot in that realm. And, and guys, there's nothing more important right now. Like there's not a better antidote to everything we are facing, to everything we are feeling than being present with God and present with people. That is our way forward. That is how the world will change. And all of the other stuff will get worked out. Hopefully in the presence of people, loving people, and in the presence of people loving God. So thank you guys. Thank you, Kurt, so much for being part of this.
1: You're welcome. It's great to be with you.
2: Hey guys, this is Chloe. And we're just so glad that you're here today listening. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jenny and Dr. Kurt Thompson. We are big fans of Dr. Thompson around here. And I don't want you to miss this book that he wrote if you want to dive a little bit deeper into this topic of shame and if this interview or this podcast episode maybe brought up some feelings in you i would love for you to go look up the soul of shame by dr kurt thompson you can find it anywhere books are sold and you can connect even further with dr thompson at KurtThomsonMD.com. and we will put all of these links in the show notes for you guys and on jenny's website Thanks again for listening. We will see you next time on the Made For This podcast.